Welcome to Reinventing You, a podcast of the Reinvention Collaborative, a Boyer-inspired national consortium of leading research universities dedicated to strengthening and, if you will, reinventing undergraduate education. We're your hosts, Steve Dandino, Executive Director, and Liz Mock, Assistant Director, and we come to you from Colorado State University in Fort Collins, Colorado, the host of the Reinvention Collaborative. Today's guest is Dr. Deborah Rudder Lowy, Director of the Paul C. Reinert Center for Transformative Teaching and Learning at St. Louis University in St. Louis, Missouri. Dr. Lowy was appointed by SLU President Fred Pastello as Acting Associate Provost for Faculty Affairs and Development last fall and as SLU's Principal Liaison with the Reinvention Collaborative, to which, by the way, she has already contributed a wonderful presentation at the 2018 Biennial National Conference. Dr. Lowy earned her doctorate in English and American Literature from Washington University in St. Louis and is a past member of the Pod Network Board of Directors and Executive and Finance Committees. Hello, Debbie. Hi, Liz. How are you? Good. Thanks so much for joining us today. So we want to talk about writing, pedagogy, and ultimately transformational teaching and learning. But first, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Where did you grow up? Where'd you go to college? And what made you want to pursue a career in higher education? Sure thing. I really appreciate the opportunity to, to share with this community. And so thanks for the invitation. So I grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas, in a most of the time working class family. I was born to very young parents, 18 and 16 year old. My father had a seventh grade education and my mother dropped out of the 10th grade to have me. So it's not going to be a surprise when I say I was a first-gen college student. Somehow I ended up with enough guidance from high school counselors, good high school counselors, to get to Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee for my undergraduate degree in English, and then completed a doctorate in English at WashU here in St. Louis. And so the question of why higher ed is a, is a super interesting one. I don't know that there was ever a question of my doing anything else. I was a kid who always loved and sought a kind of refuge, I think, in school, was always teaching something to somebody, including the stuffed animals in my room. <laughs> and college was, in many ways, the four most sort of stable and intellectually stimulating years of my life. And so I found in college that I loved being surrounded by people who wanted to read and think as a way of being. And that led me, I think, like lots of first-gen kids who end up in higher ed to think, oh, I want to be like the professors I had in college. Of course, as an undergraduate with zero people in my life who'd even gone to college, I didn't really know what that meant. Sort of went to grad school by default. I didn't know what else to do. And my college mentor was saying, of course, you're going to grad school. But once I hit grad school, I started teaching very early on and absolutely fell in love with it. And so that love for teaching combined with my own experience of feeling like a college education literally changed the possible life stories that were available to me, uh, I think are the things that made me want to stay on a college campus all the time. And so my journey has been a little circuitous, which is not uncommon for folks who do the kind of work I do. I would say it's been a really vocational kind of journey. It's the work of helping educators move from intuition to intention and that to sort of adopt evidence-based practices as a kind of foundation so that we can engage all our students from all backgrounds 
and empower all those students to meet really high standards. And so for me, that's kind of life work. You know, Debbie, your uh, story is a lot like my own, with the exception being that I went to a, a large state research university near where I grew up, whereas you went to a, one of the country's leading liberal arts schools, again, near Arkansas, Memphis being right there. How, how did you get to the Rhodes College of the world versus maybe some state university? You know, that's such a good question, Steve. I think there were a couple of key things along the way for me. Because I always loved school and because I was really certain I didn't want to drop out of the 10th grade and have a baby, um, <laughs> I was very focused on achievement as a way, I sort of knew that the path forward had to be an educational path to get me kind of out of the patterns of my family's history. So a couple of key things. One, I was in a summer program, in a gifted program, maybe eighth or ninth grade. And there was a, a woman, an African-American woman lawyer who spoke to this group of students and said she had gotten out of Arkansas and gone to Princeton and ended up with a law degree. And she said something that I think today people might not say, but she said, I took out student loans because I knew that I was worth it and I knew that I deserved something different. And every single day I have been grateful that I did that and it was completely worth it to become the person I've become. And so one piece was just somebody saying, it's going to be hard and there are going to be sort of opportunities that you don't quite know what to do with. Keep going. And then I had one really great guidance counselor in high school who said, I think you could be really successful at this little tiny place in Memphis. I, I, at the time, it wasn't even called Rhodes College. It was called Southwestern at Memphis. And he said, I think it's a school you should look at. And I didn't know anything about looking at schools. So I applied to exactly two places. Uh, one of them was the University of Arkansas, where I could have been a Razorback pep band member. Uh, and the other was and the other was Rhodes College. Right, exactly. We could call them. Um, the other was Rhodes College. And I, I got in. They gave me enough financial aid to make it viable with some small student loans. And then I went to visit the campus. And because, I mean, this is really, in some ways, not a good way to pick a school. But the brochure looked the way I thought college should look. It's very gothic architecture, ivy-covered buildings. And I went to visit the campus because a friend of mine was also going and her dad said, oh, I'll take you too. And I got to go and spend a weekend there for prospective students. And I, I got to sit in on classes. And so I'm just belaboring the point, but I sat in on a psychology class. That's what I thought I was going to study initially. And the faculty member realized there were some prospective students in the room, but there weren't enough chairs. And so she had us push all the tables in the room to the perimeter of the room and then sit on the edge of the tables so that there would be room for the prospective students. And she encouraged us to be a part of the conversation. And that was for me just like, this is a place where the classes are small and the, the faculty member that doesn't even have to give me a grade yet wants me to be in the conversation to the extent that she's willing to reconfigure the space to make sure I can be in it. And so for me, those were two kind of formative women who gave me different ways to think about what it would be like. Well, I'm glad we're delving into this because, you know, the reinvention collaborative being dedicated to the quality of undergraduate education, I think it's, it's good now and again to remind ourselves 
how important it is, how meaningful it is for students to have that opportunity and to experience what you experience and what I experience, what Liz experienced, what all of us who've really been transformed by undergraduate education in our lives, you know, what, yeah. what it means. And so thanks for so much for sharing that. You work at a school sure. right now that, you know, one of this country's and the world's great Catholic universities. We wanted to ask you if you'd share with our listeners a little bit about the distinctive nature of undergraduate education at a Catholic university. What makes it distinctive? What makes it so valuable? You bet. You know, it's funny as a non-Catholic, <laughs> It's always a little bit of a surprise for me to find myself so pleased to be at a Catholic institution. I think part of that's because it's Jesuit, not just Catholic. So that's a little bit of it. I would say one start of an answer to the question is the way in which at a Catholic Jesuit university, we get to, are allowed to, are encouraged to, are really obligated to invest in the formation of students with attention to their whole persons and to their development as intellectual, ethical, emotional, spiritual beings who have a civic role to play in creating a socially just world. So I recognize that a lot of institutions care about these same things, non-Catholic institutions, public institutions, colleges and universities that are connected to other faith traditions. Lots of us value sort of whole person development of students and the formation of ethical thinkers and justice-minded citizens. I, I understand that. So with that in mind, it, distinctive may not be quite right, but I think about the long tradition of Catholic social teaching and of Jesuit education's commitment to humanistic education and, and kind of vocational discernment that is not just for folks going into the clergy, but actually the idea that we all have a kind of vocational path and journey and that we have to do some meaningful work to discern what that work is. I think when you think about those components together, there is something special that kind of becomes a defining element of Catholic and Jesuit institutions. I would say, I think we have maybe a little bit of a built-in advantage over public institutions that may strive for very similar things because many of our students come to us precisely because of these identities and commitments. And so for me, I think it just adds a layer of intrinsic motivation for our students, which might give us a slightly easier time getting them on board for some of the things we care about. It may not be true, but it is sort of a gut reaction kind of thing that I, that I think is there. So I don't think it's that we care about these things in, we care about things that others don't. I think in some ways, we have permission to go a little bit farther and to push our students a little more in some of those key areas because they come with a kind of built-in, many of them come with a kind of built-in commitment to those things. You know, as a non-Catholic like yourself, who's worked at a Catholic university in the past for quite a number of years, I really, again, identify with what you just offered there, that sense of a richer context, that set of expectations that motivates everyone to pursue some ends that we all, regardless of where we're coming from, can really rally around and admire. And in that regard, I, you mentioned that St. Louis University is a Jesuit institution, not only a Catholic institution. Could you maybe say a little bit more about Ignatian pedagogy and philosophy, how it informs the undergraduate experience at SLU, but also at every Jesuit institution? You bet. How much time do we have? 
Well, yeah. <laughs> so the, the primer version of Ignatian pedagogy is that it's a, a framework for thinking about teaching and learning that derives from the spiritual practices of St. Ignatius of Loyola, who founded the Jesuits in the 1540s. And so I would say St. Ignatius would not have said there's this thing called Ignatian pedagogy. But I think over time, Jesuits have come to see that there is an embedded uh, way of thinking about teaching that comes from the spiritual framework of St. Ignatius. And so I like to think about Ignatian pedagogy as a kind of process or a framework, but I'll talk about the sort of five elements in that framework, but very much want to underscore that they're not discrete parts. But for the sake of ease and talking about them, I'll, I'll tease out what the sort of five elements are. So they are context, experience, reflection, action, and evaluation. And so let me say just a bit about each of those, and I'll, I'll try to be efficient. Context is really the idea that all learning is situated in a particular context and that the individuals involved in the teaching and learning relationships, their backgrounds, their past experiences, their assumptions, their mindsets, all of that is in play when we think about learning in the Ignatian context. I also think it, it, it suggests there's a kind of individuality to what we do and an attention to, to learners as individuals in their context. So that's the sort of context piece. And then from there, we think about experience. And so this idea is sort of twofold. The idea that learning obviously in, involves drawing on previous experiences, but probably even more importantly, it's, the way of, it's a way of thinking about teaching as the creation of experiences of learning. And so I have a colleague here at SLU, Dr. Gina Marys, who always says that something really important happens when we shift from thinking about the work our students do in courses as activities and assignments to thinking about them as experiences. And that what happens when we do that is it can add a layer of significance and meaning to those activities. And so something shifts when I say, I'm not just creating an assignment for my students. I'm actually creating an experience, a learning experience in which they're going to bring their whole selves. I would say, so then context experience, then uh, reflection. And that's probably one of the most defining elements of a Jesuit education. Often if people don't know much of all of anything about Jesuit education, they know that it's about social justice and it has a lot of reflection. So for us, reflection is really a key component kind of deep and critical thinking about how we have experienced learning experiences, drawing in both the affective and the cognitive. And so what are we to learn from the experiences we have? And what are the ways in which those experiences can shift our perspective on our own context, which, which sort of gets at the idea that the context is constantly moving, right? There's a little bit of a way in which context is shifting as we learn and reflect on learning. The last two pieces are action and evaluation. If we think about, so we've had experiences, we've reflected on those, and then we identify future actions we can take, or, and we put our learning into action. So that's a crucial component. I think it's also that reflection helps us to think about how our actions change from, from previous actions, right? And so when we move into the idea of evaluation, that's sort of built in. I think it's easy for us to think about evaluation as the thing teachers do which is important, right? It comes with feedback, which is essential to learning. But it's also, I also want to sort of invoke the layer of self-evaluation because we want our students to leave 
with an ability to reflect on their own actions as learners and then as humans and evaluate those actions against some set of standards, ethical standards, intellectual standards, disciplinary norms. So that that kind of interplay of reflection, action, and evaluation, and then with experience constantly being the mediator, I think we see these as kind of a process of learning, not so much as discrete elements. You asked about whether these concepts can be applied outside of a Catholic Jesuit education, and I think anybody listening is going to say, well, yeah, of course they can. I mean, in fact, they sound pretty familiar to people who know their research on learning. So each of these layers really has its own role to play in the, in the sort of fundamentals of how learning works. So think about the other terms we use for these same ideas in higher ed. Meeting students where they are. Considering cultural differences, for instance. That's context. Putting students in real-world situations where they can apply learning. That's experience and action. And then fostering kind of metacognitive habits to help them identify what they've learned and how they've learned it and how they can transfer that learning. That's reflection, evaluation, action. So for me, I think it's just similar to, to the thing I said earlier. It's that having a framework like this allows students to maybe have a little more buy-in. There's a little more spark of motivation for them. For teachers, for faculty, for instructors, I think having this kind of framework reminds us to be intentional about about building in all these parts, right? So that we're not missing a key part. That makes a lot of sense, Debbie. I'd like to maybe just kind of um, draw out a little bit more of the role of language uh, in particular and ask, you know, what makes facility with language, you know, by which I'm thinking of writing well and confidence engaging, challenging text and verbal communication skills and comfort with various styles and you know, even the study of languages other than the one of one's initial language. What, what makes that so critical to formation, as you put it, to the forming of self of an educated person? And if you wanted to make a case for the humanities, here's your chance. <laughs> well, you know I do. <laughs> Let's see. I, so I'll say, first of all, I don't think we can separate understanding and social cultural contexts from language. Language is constructed, obviously, and and understanding its nuances is really understanding something about ourselves and our worlds. And so it's interesting to me, as someone with multiple degrees in English, but who is not working in English, I can't tell you how crucial that training has been in the work I do with faculty members thinking about teaching, right? So understanding how to analyze patterns in a text It's not that different from understanding patterns of things that unfold in a classroom. And so for me, that's really key work. I think think the humanities and, and this sort of prioritization of language is really important. I think we have to, what I think of as sort of training students' humanistic eye, as it were, is essential for them as human beings because the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves, about our world, this is where identity and reality and possibility exist. And stories are where we encounter others and gain insight into others' lived experiences and into the ways in which those others are really more like us than not. Language is how we cultivate empathy. There's a lot about this in education right now. You know, how we foster connectedness, how we engage. And even when we don't know another someone else's language, language becomes sort of essential to the act of connection. So 
A quick example, earlier this year, I was had the privilege of getting a chance to go down to the U.S.-Mexico border and to do a little work there with the Kino Border Initiative. And the purpose of the trip was really to be a witness. And, and Kino has this sort of three things they want people to do when they're in one of these border experiences. The first one is to humanize migrants and ranchers and border patrol agents and judges and lawyers and everybody else who's living and working at the border, humanize. The next is to accompany, to sort of accompany migrants on a small part of their journey, which is, you know, we just saw a tiny bit of that. And then finally, to complicate, to complicate our understanding of what's happening in the border, at the border, to uh, our understanding of the human beings living there, our understanding of our role in addressing the issues happening there. So I don't speak Spanish. <laughs> Most of my encounters with migrants and some of my encounters with people working down there to serve migrants were in a language that was not mine. But I was there to listen to their stories and to witness their realities. And so even though I needed a translator, thank goodness there were people there who do speak Spanish, I also observed the language of their faces, the language of their tears, the language of their hand gestures, and, and really tried to pay attention to all the things I could be learning, not just the facts of their stories, but the fact of how their stories have impacted them as human beings. And once I started to understand those stories, my task was to come back to my daily life, tell some of those, and to serve as a witness, and to, again, think about humanizing, accompanying, and complicating other people's understanding of what's happening there. For me, that that notion of humanize, accompany, and complicate, that's the work the humanities are doing every day on our campuses. And so in the written word, in theatrical performance, all of those things that show me another way, that awaken my own awareness of privilege and structural inequality, reading history and accounts of history that help me to understand what has happened in this world of human beings, how have power and privilege and poverty and oppression dictated what's possible for individuals, how I participate in all those systems. Those things are really what the humanities are for, it seems to me. And when I think about, so one other thing I'd say about language, I think about rhetoric and logic and the importance of critical thinking and sound evidence. You know, I think there's a lot in our culture right now about data literacy and numeric literacy and helping students to be really good critical thinkers of, about numbers. What I observed at the border is so much richer and more complicated and more human than almost anything I see in the media that I think the education we're providing students in, in any kind of institution really ought to empower them to work with stories and numbers and statistics, right, to detect bias, to think for themselves, and to look for other kinds of evidence and to value the humanistic evidence alongside the numeric evidence. These are not mutually exclusive domains or areas of emphasis, and I think when we privilege one over the other, I think we're shortchanging students. I think the reality is how they engage with any kind of data, qualitative, quantitative, or otherwise, in our classrooms is how they're going to engage with data when they leave us. And so I think we have an intense social obligation to make sure that they see data and language and stories as part of the real world, not just exams and papers in a classroom. This is not obviously an exhaustive response, but it's a little bit of a beginning, I think. That's great. And what a powerful experience that must have been. It really, really was. So how might research universities best foster excellence in writing? And do we need to draw from the same wellspring of values and orienting impulses to strengthen university pedagogy? 
I, I love thinking about writing and pedagogy as analogous because I really do see them that way, probably because of my disciplinary background and the work I do now. But when I think about writing and teaching together, I think they both represent a craft. They both represent kind of habits and practices that can be taught and learned. And writing and teaching both, I think, I think in each of those cases, we can go through the motions and sort of get the job done. Or we can use writing or teaching as a kind of vibrant, energizing act of creativity. I think, you know, writing is something, it's also like teaching, writing is something that most of our students come to us knowing something about. And they've been writing forever in different contexts. I, I think faculty also come to us with lots of experience as observers of teaching, even when they haven't been trained formally. And so... I, you know, I said earlier that I, I think my work is really about helping people move from intuition to intention. I think this notion is really important to both things. So let me talk about ways I think we can foster excellence in writing. The first thing I think we can do is be explicit about how many different kinds of excellence there really are. So I think lots of students can miss the fact that what constitutes excellence in writing in one field might look quite different from another field. They often don't know that different disciplines have different modes, right? Different modes of expression. This is something we hope they're learning when they're with us. I think we need to cultivate students' sort of readerly and writerly eye so that they can detect the ways in which different kinds of writing and different kinds of audiences demand different kinds of choices. And if they can do that, they can see those things a little more clearly. I think they can understand that writing involves making a set of choices. And those choices, you know, you choose one thing as opposed to 16 other things, because those different choices lead to different effects. So I think we have to create experiences with different kinds of writing for students, different kinds of writing, certainly longer and more complex writing than they may be used to reading. I think we have to help them begin to see the rhetorical strategies at work in a piece of writing. I think before they can really write in ways that we might think of as excellent, they have to know how to de detect the choices that have already been made in a piece of writing. And so I think of this as kind of, you know, you remember, I haven't been in, a, in an elementary school classroom in a while, but I remember that globes and maps in my classrooms growing up had topographical relief, right? There were sort of recessed features and raised features so that you could tell the difference between mountains and plains by touching the map. In some ways, I think we need to help students to see kind of in relief what kinds of language choices are at play and the nuance behind why different writing choices yield different effects. So I think honing students' ability to see written texts for their madeness, how they are made, as the research in writing and rhetoric talk about, I think that's a really crucial thing. I think there's there are other things we can do. I think we need to encourage students to look for those writerly choices in real world writing, even something as mundane as an instruction manual. Why does it seem mundane and why does it need to seem mundane? Those are matters of style and intentionality, right? I think students might not see those things without a little bit of coaching and honing. I think we need to create opportunities for students to write things that have real audiences, that have authentic expressions of what they think, in ways that go beyond writing for the professor. So when a student would ask me, what do you want me to write about? I, that was the sort of most deadly question of all, right? I want you to write about something you care about. What? I don't know how to do that. <laughs> and helping students to understand that link between writing and thinking. 
And so we often arrive at what and how we think by writing or speaking, right? The sort of verbal processing. And I think even for students who don't process verbally as their go-to mode, I think they need it. Uh, Increasingly, workplaces of all kinds are placing a premium on the ability to use language in particular ways and to do that with a kind of fluency of awareness that different kinds of audiences and cultures and contexts require a different approach to language. I think students need to learn all of that. And I think kind of metacognitively, they need to know that they're leaving us with those things. So that meta-level awareness so that they can know how to put it into practice uh, when they leave us, I think are really important. You know, you asked about whether there's a kind of similar wellspring of values and impulses that might strengthen pedagogy at the university level. And I would say yes. I think, you know, again, I'm going to say that intuition to intention shift is a really important one. I think it's an old adage that we teach as we were taught, right? So many of us come to higher ed without formal training in teaching, but we have we have tried to teach in the ways that we saw others teach, whether we're really aware of it or not. And so I think many of us need to learn to see teaching choices in relief as well. We need to observe and learn about what are the range of choices available to us as teachers and why would we want to or not want to make those choices and to begin to think about the relationship between choice and effect in in a classroom setting or in an online course in exactly the same way we do uh, how we think about word choice and sentence structure for those of us who write and think about that. I think it's really easy for us to think the only choices are sort of lecture or discussion. And, uh, you know, many of us teach intuitively in ways that don't line up very well with the, what the research tells us about how people learn. And so I think it's complicated because many of us have been teaching for a long time and it mostly has worked for us what we've been doing. But I do think, I do think most of us teaching in higher ed come to this because we were particular kinds of learners. And so we decided to stay in the academy and learn forever because it came easy to us. We were probably more self-directed than all of my students are. We were probably more verbal in the first place. Uh, We might have been better able to learn from listening. I think what we're seeing is a shift to, to really thinking about a commitment to inclusive teaching, which is that I feel a pressure and an obligation to try to be intentional about my choices as a teacher to ensure that all my students can learn and meet the standards of rigor that I want for them. I mean, I think it's important to say inclusive teaching is not watering down. I think inclusive teaching and really teaching in ways that are going to reach more kinds of learners gives us permission to hold higher standards because we can feel pretty confident that we have defined for students what is the standard of rigor we want, not the standard of read my mind, which sometimes I think in my earlier years as a teacher is what I think is how I think I approached rigor. Oh, well, if you if you can intuitively already do the thing I think is smart, then you must be a really good student. And I think that's just a clear sign of the privilege of those who have been taught well to be students, but not necessarily taught well to be learners. Absolutely. So you've talked a lot about how educators can change their thinking about their approaches to higher ed. But what do you think is the most important and urgent reform you see as needed to improve undergraduate education at research universities? One, just one. (laughs) We don't have all day. I'm sure we can all go on. (laughs) I, I think this is a really hard question. 
partly because I think every college and university, and particularly research universities, we're all a little different. And some are a little farther ahead, whatever that means, in improving undergraduate education. And I think what kind of improvement is needed is different at different institutions. And I think there are some smaller or more medium-sized things we could focus on, uh, deepening understanding and increasing use of authentic and transparent learning activities, right? Consistently fostering students' ability to see the connections between what they're learning inside the university and what they'll do outside the university. I think lots of institutions are working on those things. And I think about access and affordability and equity as some big, you know, they're not single reforms, but they're big things that I hope we're going to continue to, to work on. So I don't have an answer, but I do have a thing that I have been puzzling over. I don't think it's a reform exactly. I don't think it just applies to research universities, although I think it's where we see it the most. I think we have a kind of dominating values tension in research universities that we need to resolve. And I'm not talking about the usual one. So often we cast this sort of dominant tension in values as teaching versus research, teaching and research. Certainly that tension is real in lots of places, but underneath that tension increasingly, I see what I think is a slightly different and maybe even more pressing tension. I think it underlies lots of calls for reform that we see in higher ed. So before I tell you what it is, building suspense, storytelling, (laughs) let me say I use the word tension as a kind of observational or physical word, not as a negative conceptual word. So tension as in physical, you know, sort of stretch tight or two things pulling or pushing against each other. So the tension I think we're beginning to really experience in a, in a disruptive way and that we need to find some creative ways to think about is the tension between the value of disciplines and the value of interdisciplines. So on the one hand, research universities are by design built on kind of strong disciplinary units and foundations. And within those, there's disciplinary identity, disciplinary integrity, Uh, disciplinary education, right? That's crucial. From this perspective, I think fidelity to discipline is really important. Understanding a discipline's history, its evolution, understanding the ways in which a deep disciplinary knowledge is essential to so much of what we care about. It's, It's what most of us are here for. That's one hand. On the other hand, increasingly, I think we see the value of interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary, transdisciplinary ways of thinking and working. So we often say to students, and I think we believe, that the wicked problems of our day cannot be solved or addressed effectively by a single discipline, or even really by a kind of artificial lining up of single disciplines to chip away at different aspects of a problem in a kind of sequence. So I think about, you know, it's easy, I think, to think cooperatively about this. So once a climatologist has looked at a particular problem, then a political scientist can take a look at that thing. Then a communication scholar can step in and take her part of it. That's not really how we're going to address something like climate change, right? It's more overlapping and nuanced than that. And even within disciplines, I think much of the innovative work that's happening is being fueled by a kind of sense of overlaps and intersections with other disciplinary methods and knowledge and question. This tension, I think, shows up in lots of ways on our campus. So I think about undergraduate gen ed reform and core curriculum reform where institutions grapple with the balance of how many disciplinary-based courses and how many integrative or interdisciplinary-based courses. I think about budgets and resource allocation. 
Some disciplines get privileged over others, often to the detriment of those who really, really want to think interdisciplinarily, right? I think about institutional structures. We've begun to see academic units, departments, colleges formed not around disciplines, but around combinations of disciplines under an umbrella term that allows parts of those disciplines to find a home there. So I think about the work that Michael Crow has been doing at Arizona State. But even in those truly innovative examples, I think it can feel to people like fidelity to or strength of disciplinary identity gets compromised. So I don't have a, a, an answer for this, but I think the tension is, is kind of the core values tension of our day. I think it lives below the surface. I think it's implied, but not explicitly grappled with. I think it means we're going to continue to see disciplines as either in competition with one another or disciplinary identities kind of diluted and merged into others. I think some people in higher ed think that's okay, or maybe even essential, sort of the dissolving of disciplinary boundaries. But I will say, I think the notion of interdisciplinarity is at risk if disciplinary boundaries stop being a thing. So a small point to illustrate, we often say we want an undergraduate to experience the value of thinking interdisciplinarily to address a big challenge. So we need her to bring the methods of and knowledge and habits of one discipline into contact with the methods and knowledge and habit of another discipline to see what happens, what's revealed. This is something I think a lot of institutions want students to be able to do, and rightly, it seems to me. But I think I wonder what happens if the student doesn't actually know either of these disciplines. If she hasn't had experiences with disciplinary depth to be able to do that intellectual work, what happens if, if the value of interdisciplinarity overshadows the value of disciplinarity, I think the two sort of start to cancel each other out. I mean, I, you know, we could get into a, a big debate about whether it's interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary or transdisciplinary, but at the, at, the, at the root of all those terms, there's a presupposition that some sort of disciplinary identity is a foundation. And I don't, I, you know, as I say, this is not a specific reform, but I do think it's a point of tension that we are just at the beginning of trying to address and think about. And I think the calls for reform for research universities are, you know, they're longstanding and they're increasingly pressing. I think everything from curriculum to structures to budgets, et cetera, all of those things touch on this question of the balance of interdisciplinary and disciplinary. And I, I don't know quite how it's going to get resolved. We need better minds than mind thinking about that set of questions. But for me, it would be a tremendously helpful thing if we could have a new way of thinking about how those two sides of the house sort of speak to each other. That was wonderful. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Debbie, for that thoughtful reply. I was thinking of Foucault. <laughs> oh, as gosh. You were talking there at the end. Don't you think? Yeah, I mean, exactly. The, the dialogical. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Yeah, it was. Wow. That, that's not what I expected you to say. <laughs> but I thought glad it would be about did. teaching, didn't you? <laughs> I, it, well, it is, though, you <laughs> yeah, know, because sure. how, how would you, how do we teach through those tensions yeah. and learn through them as faculty, let alone as students? Because, yes. you know, we're just one big learning community. And I don't know. Right. I'm well, just... I, yeah. You know, Steve, that makes me think of one thing. I, disciplinary identity is so fundamental to those of us who work in universities. It's rarely fundamental to students who learn in universities. <laughs> and I mean, I, I remember working with some students a number of years ago, and I used the word discipline, and, and they were relatively new students, and they said, okay, wait, I had a rule in my class. If you don't know a word I use, you have to stop me and, and make me define it. 
And so a student said, I don't know what you mean by discipline. So it came out that they think in terms of majors and departments, but they don't really know that language structures in all of those departments function differently because of priorities in the discipline, right? And so I think just cultivating their awareness that different, as I was saying earlier, different modes of writing have different standards of excellence and that those have something to do with the kinds of questions the group of people doing the writing ask and that that's disciplinary. I, th I think that students just don't think about those things in the ways that we do. And so I think we do have to find some creative ways to sort of dissolve the silos, but without losing what matters about disciplinary identity. So any last thoughts before we let you go? I no, I I thank you for letting me talk about such interesting ideas. <laughs> Hopefully they're going to resonate. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us today. And on behalf of our members and listeners, Steve and I would like to thank Dr. Deborah Lowy, Director of the Reinert Center for Transformational Teaching and Learning at St. Louis University. Great. It's been my pleasure. Yeah. Thanks so much for chatting with us today, Debbie. You bet. And thanks to you for listening to Reinventing You, a podcast of the Reinvention Collaborative. Reinventing You is available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about the Reinvention Collaborative, check us out at reinventioncollaborative, one word, .org. That's reinventioncollaborative.org. RC members can listen to an extended version of this interview at the members section of this site. <laughs>